on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, education, and employment provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today, we're bringing you another in our series called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world details of their courageous, sub-rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the half-century of disinformation that our country has led the world into believing about psychedelic medicines and instead inform the world that prominent, good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers, and civic leaders have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn about and from these psychedelic substances and thereby allow the general public to benefit from their significant healing and creative properties. Our special guest today is the philosopher Charles Bush, whom I have interviewed several times on this program, including recently as himself a psychedelic elder. Charles will now take over as host of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics in order to conduct today's interview. Welcome, Charles. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. Um, it's a delight to be hosting your show, and uh, it's a very important little switcheroo that we're going to do because what I want to do is introduce all of your listeners to my favorite all-time guest, Dr. Richard Miller, a psychedelic elder, perhaps the origin of the concept of the psychedelic uh, elder sitting right here in the studio with me. We've switched chairs. It's time for us to hear from the source of this concept, the psychedelic elder. But before we get started, Richard, uh, we're going to just do it all from scratch. Where are you living right now and what are you up to these days? <laughs> well, I'm living in two places. Primarily, I'm living in Fort Bragg, California, which is about three hours northwest of San Francisco. It's a little former fishing and logging village right on the coast, small population, about 7,000 people. And when we're not living, uh, when I say we, I mean my beautiful wife, Jolie, and myself. And when we're not living here uh, uh, in Fort Bragg on the coast, we live at Wilbur Hot Springs that I've been associated with and was the founder of some 50 years ago. Uh, Richard, are you still are you still in, in active practice? Is that primarily what you're doing now, or have you moved all the way over into uh, 
into a larger mission of uh, media presence and education uh, in a much larger scale. What, what's going on now for you? I, I am still seeing uh, clients and patients. Uh, and by the way, I differentiate between clients and patients. Uh, clients are people who come to me primarily to expand because they want to grow, but basically everything is okay. Uh, clients are also sometimes businesses that bring me in to consult with the leaders right. of the businesses. So that's my client base. And patients are people who are suffering uh, right. from some emotional distress, anxiety, depression, OCD, uh, sometimes schizophrenia, sometimes marital problems. So, uh, yes, I'm still in practice, though I have scaled back quite a bit. Uh, during the pandemic, I've been able to uh, enjoy seeing people over the Zoom, uh, which has been... Uh, really very relieving for me because it means I can be anywhere and uh, meet with my clients and patients. I don't have to be sitting in one room. So that's what I'm doing there. And of course, I'm doing the radio program, Mind, Body, Health and Politics. And I'm also writing. I'm working on, I'm in contract on several books right now. So you're kind of, you're kind of nudging over into true elderhood, uh, a little bit of work, some research, some writing, some broadcasts, some general education. How, how old are you now, Richard? I'm, <laughs> I'm 82 years old, Charles. Oh, isn't that a righteous, 80s are good, I think. Well, I, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I really pretty much only know how old I am when I'm standing up. When I'm isn't sitting down or laying down, I feel pretty much the same as I always have. But as soon as I stand up, I realize that I've aged quite a bit. Um, Richard, because we're going to move over into a conversation about, about the impact of psychedelics and your personal use of psychedelics, uh, let's start by getting a little baseline because psychedelics have been so important in opening both psychological and spiritual ranges for people. Um, were you brought up as a religious person? And what's a little bit about, about your history over on the, on the heart and spirit side? Um, I was not brought up uh, with religion. Uh, my father was a second or third generation uh, atheist. And suppose, I guess I'm a... Uh, a fourth uh, generation, uh, <laughs> somewhere between, uh, I know this is a weak position that I'm going to state, but it, it, it's my truth, which is that I'm, I'm somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic. Gotcha. And, and the reason I say that is because to take the atheist position is to deny the existence. Well, once you do that, that's an untenable position because... You can't be sure when you're denying something that what you're denying is deniable. It's exactly. improvable, right? Exactly. So that really leads one to the agnostic position, which is we're uncertain and we don't know. Don't know for sure. Yeah. Don't so know for sure. since I must admit that I don't know, I think my atheist position is a weak position. So, um, Richard, t tell me a little bit about... Uh, what was going on in your life and what led up to your first uh, contact, your, your, your first psychedelic experience? Well, you know, I interviewed uh, some, what I've been interviewing various. I, you know, I, I want to interrupt you for just a minute. I said psychedelic experience, but, but let's, let's open that up to mind altering experience in general. Did, was your psychedelic experience preceded by any kind of, 
awakening kind of experience or or that I mean, we, we don't necessarily want to start with the pillow we might want to start with the experience <laughs> well you took an interesting turn there and uh, if I'm going to broaden uh, the, the response to early um, uh, how did you put it uh, like an opening or a big opening. awakening kind of experience yeah well then I have to acknowledge another kind of experience which is that um, when I was uh, about five and a half years old, I had a series of sexual experiences, and they were um, they were sh- they were huge. I don't know how well, what other word to use. They were huge and transporting. Uh, it occurred with a babysitter, and she was about. Uh, 12 or 13 years, she might have been 11, I don't know for sure, maybe somewhere between 11 and 13 years old, and uh, and she engaged me in sexual act, in sexual intercourse, actually, mm-hmm. uh, at that age, and and it was uh, it was it was earth shaking, transporting, it was, it for was sure. transporting, right. right? It was huge. So that was a. That was a major, major experience in my early life. And then I had another one, and, and, and I, there's a lot, lot of story, of course, that goes with that, because interestingly enough, I then ran into that woman uh, some 14 years later, in, because the incident itself happened uh, in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. My father was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. And uh, we lived off base in the swamps, which was a wonderful place to to grow up as a child. Uh, But I then ran into her again many years later in New York City. But that's another story. (laughs) Uh, Getting back to your question of of large, illuminating experiences, uh, I was walking in New York City uh, with my mother as a little boy, uh, this is this is actually prior to the to the uh, to the sexual experience, and um, we went to visit a friend of hers, and it was a what was called a walk up. The building was two flights; it was two stories, and you walked up one uh-huh. flight of stairs. And we walked up the flight of stairs, and at the landing at the top, there was water all over the floor, and my mother slipped and fell down the oh entire gosh. flight of stairs. Oh and at the gosh. bottom, there were milk bottles. In those days, they were made out of glass. Right. And she smashed her head into the milk bottles, uh, was rendered unconscious, and was laying there in a pool of blood. Wow. And I, at the time, was about three years old. Actually, it, w- it was prior to that other experience. About three years old. And I went around knocking on doors on the landing until someone came to a door. And I said, call my father. And I gave them my father's telephone right. number which at three I knew. And um, they got my dad. He came running over. He got an ambulance. And after that, I had the experience when I would walk in the neighborhood with my grandmother of people would come out of stores. I get sort of choked up when I tell the story. People would come out of, out of stores and they would point at me and they would say, that's the little boy the who boy. saved his mother's life. Wow. And the feeling that I got when that would happen was um, indescribable. Indescribable. It was the, 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 the only thing 
I, I can even almost compare it to was later on, which we'll get to, major uh, psychedelic experience or perhaps orgasm. Right. But this right. thing of, you know, that little boy saved his mother's life. And that had a major effect on my entire life because after that, as I grew up, things that I could do to help people were tremendously rewarding. Yeah. The feeling that I got from helping anybody with almost anything was rewarding. And I've had a few experiences in my life where I directly saved someone's life and it brought back that early experience. So we've already got a long before psychedelic nourishment, you, we, we have this strong base that involves great traditional transporting experiences, sex, encounter with a near-death possibility, and uh, heroic and courageous intervention, all three of which, if you look at the literature, of course, um, are, for many people, moments of illumination, of awakening, of instant growth, of expansion. So now eventually, with that incredibly strong and powerful base, psychedelic nourishment came into your life. How did that happen? Well, that happened because I was... uh... A student at the University of Illinois. I was a freshman. I was 16 years old. I came back uh, to New York for Christmas vacation. Uh, This was uh, the uh, December of 1955. I was 16 because I was born in 39. And um, we lived right near Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And I went to a party in Greenwich Village and I was offered uh, something to smoke called marijuana. (laughs) I think they called it tea at the time. We're smoking tea, man. And so I smoked some tea, and uh, then I smoked some more tea, and I had a a very large uh, emotional and physiological experience. Wow. And uh, it was amazing that I even made it back to my folks' home after that, uh, or let alone to drive a car, which I did uh, to get back there, because I can remember even sitting here talking to you, uh, the, the, the way the lights were changing in front of me as I was driving. So that was my next one. So and cannabis at 16. Ca- cannabis at 16 as a freshman at the University of Illinois. Wow. And so um, after that, I went back to the uh, people who threw the party that next day, and, uh, and asked them for some more of that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do that again. I did. I, I did. I wanted to do some more of that. And, um, and they said, well, come back in a couple of days. And I said, well, look, I'm leaving. I got to get back to college. And they said, all right, come back tomorrow. And I went back tomorrow and they gave me a jar of it, a mason jar of it. And I took it back <laughs> to the University of Illinois. I couldn't wait to share it with my friends. And so I got back to Illinois uh, almost immediately uh, shared it with a group of friends, and I remember this day because we we smoked uh, the marijuana, and for hours we just laid around giggling. I mean, th- that isn't something that went on for the rest of my life. Always giggling, but those first yeah. experiences, yeah. we just laid around giggling. It was like taking laughing gas. It's not like being amused. It's going into the state of amusement as your essential being. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. it was it was uh, it was really a lot of fun, but it was not uh, at that time what I'd call introspective, right? Uh, right. It wasn't something that I was using for personal growth and development, which is what I I, I eventually 
uh, only used uh, psychedelics for. It was really for recreation and, and having fun, right? And it was uh, much less, even then, it was much less fattening than drinking beer in the beer <laughs> holes with the other guys, uh, right? So, And that was also prior to um, the intense anti-drug movement in the United States. I mean, uh, cannabis was illegal and all that sort of thing, but... but uh, at least among college students, there wasn't a lot of attention being paid to it. There was no time. attention yeah. being paid to yeah. it, and very few people had it. Right. When I used up that jar, I didn't see marijuana again for years, right. for years and years and years, really. In fact, I didn't see marijuana again for... I went to college for 11 years. I didn't see, I didn't see marijuana again perhaps for another 10. Wow. Yeah. So then, what happened? You so you you well. You, what happened you had then? That cannabis is, Foundation. You had those early experiences. Yes. What what led you to larger psychedelic exploration? Well, in the in the sixties, I'm in graduate school and then teaching at the University of Michigan, and and we had a close association with Harvard, and Leary and Alpert were doing their work at Harvard. And I got word through the TomTom system about what they were doing. And so I got a hold of this book called, that they wrote called The Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in the book, The Tibetan Book of the Dead, they say that if you buy morning glory seeds, two particular kinds, heavenly blue heavenly and pearly gates, <laughs> pearly gates. <laughs> you will have a psychedelic experience. Yep. Well, I read that book, and that afternoon I was at the local seed That's store sure buying out all the <laughs> heavenly blue and pearly gates I could. And that weekend, uh, my friend and I, uh, Alan Pincense, who long departed, uh, and our ladies as guides, Alan and I each painfully ingested 400 morning glory seeds. And I say painfully because it's not that easy to swallow 400 morning no, glory it's seeds. No, it's, it's, it's harder than, than swallowing dry metamucil uh, <laughs> or psyllium. But we did. And I had a major uh, psychedelic experience. Wow. And it was illuminating. It was terribly frightening. It was monumental and scared the hell out of the two women who said that they would never participate in anything <laughs> like this again. Wow. Because at one point, I'm on the floor with my eyes closed, and I'm having these incredibly frightening experiences that I'm believing that People are gonna are smashing down the walls, and they're gonna enter the room and take us away because we were doing something that was wrong and illegal. And I was just incredibly scared until finally I had the good sense to open up my eyes because I was laying there with my eyes closed for this experience. Sure. And I opened up my eyes and I looked out the window. And there were two men with hammers hammering on the wall, and they were tele- <laughs> they were telephone line repairmen. 
Oh, my goodness. And so then I had this realization that it was the, it really was, I wasn't in a paranoid state of right. thinking this terrible thing was happening or believing it really was happening. It was that it, there were two guys out really there hammering and they really on. were banging on the wall. So I laughed my head off. I explained that to the other three people. And from then on, I cruised. I learned a great deal about the substance itself, about the importance of, of doing a little reality check after right. one is dealing with stuff internally and what can come out. And Did you have an expectation about what was going to happen, or was this a, a pretty raw entry into psychedelic space? The, the, uh, the only expectations were those that I had based on what I'd read from Leary and Alpert, and I read Huxley, right? And so I'd done so, reading. So you did it. have a set about. I it, had yeah. a certain amount from reading, but I hadn't ever met anyone who had had the experience. Hand, I right? didn't have any guide in that regard, other than than the people that were with me. I mean, I knew enough to have people who were not under the right. influence in the room, just in case. Right. But Even, none of them had had a psychedelic. No, none of them had had anything like it. So it was kind of flying blind. It was. It was. It was just about flying blind. That's right. And at the end of the experience, it lasted at least eight or ten hours, um, I was determined that I was going to do it again. I knew that I was onto something. Right. I knew that the things that I'd seen, uh, the pyramids in my mind, I saw the pyramids. I saw Egyptians working on the pyramids. Uh, I saw um, uh, what looked like prehistoric uh, animals uh, there seemed to be so much information, and, and and the way I saw them were not like replicas of things I'd seen in the movies. It, it, it felt almost as if I was looking into my own DNA in some way, and so I was very excited about that. Um, but then we didn't have any morning glory, more morning glory seeds. The women wouldn't sit with us again, so... <laughs> My next experience was um, in 1967, in the summer of 1967. So that's a few years later. And I was on a summer vacation from teaching at the U of M in Ann Arbor. And I was at the Esalen Institute, which is a whole story in and sure. of itself of how I got to the Esalen Institute from Ann Arbor, Michigan, because Esalen's in Big Sur, California. Um, but I was at Esalen for the summer. I was the resident, their first resident fellow, uh, living in this beautiful roundhouse over a creek. And my friend Lionel Bloom from the University of Illinois uh, flew over from Paris. He was working on a PhD at Columbia, and he went to Paris to study and uh, got involved with all kinds of things in Paris, including LSD. So he flew over, came to Esalen, and brought LSD with him. So during the summer of love, the summer of the Monterey Jazz Festival, right, I was going to say it was happening, which I went at to, its peak, wasn't it, it was at its peak, and and Lionel brought LSD, and I took LSD at Esalen, and that was a further seminal experience because it was during that experience that I had a visualization that all of humanity on the planet. I actually saw it in my head. I saw all of humanity on the planet connected to one another like a magnetic or electromagnetic field 
that looked like a hairnet. So if you could picture the planet and all the people on it, and all of the people are connected through these strands that I saw in my mind, and every one of them is connected, and it gave me the feeling that almost, it, it, almost maybe I projected onto it my existential philosophy, which is that we're all responsible for everyone all the time, that all of us are in this together in a certain way, whether we know it or not. And this visualization that I saw was this hairnet of strands of how we were connected. It was almost like a visualization of what we hear that, you know, if a hummingbird flies in your backyard, somehow the, the repercussions can be felt in right, England, right, right? Right. Well, it was that kind of thing. And, not, so, and not at a conceptual level, which you had already, but but actual experiential gut visual connectedness. And you knew that. You correct. knew you were connected. Yeah, not, it, not as an idea, but as an actual it was experiential a fact. I, it, was, it was a feeling, as an experiential feeling that I was part of and connected to everyone on the planet at that moment, that we were a, this, this t powerful feeling that we are all in this together. And would you say that that, that feeling has stayed with you and, and did that change your life? It changed my life and that feeling has never left me. I, I, I believe to this very day that we are all in this together. I don't believe in boundaries between countries. I think they are man-made figments, and I think they're silly. I think they divide us rather than unite us. I think the, the, the geography and the way we've set up geography as if some people live on different continents, which makes them different. Yeah, they live in different areas of the planet, but it's all our planet and we are all the people of the planet. I don't believe that this thing, the, the differentiation of countries and languages, I understand how it came about because a person in one area of the world, a group of people gets together and they make a sound, and, they, and that sound stands for, in another country, we call it chair. So all of us here in the United States are English speaking, we point to that thing we sit on, we make a grunt, that comes out chair, and then we all agree that that grunt <clears throat> chair means that thing. But somewhere else, in, 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 in Spanish, they make a grunt that comes out sia. So they say sia, and they mean chair, etc. Here we say window, and in Spanish they say ventana. But so, and, and, but even though there's no cultural contact there still is complete understanding exactly. because we are connected we are one creature yes and i do believe that eventually as humanity and the world progresses what's going to happen is these languages are all going to disappear and there's going to be one language on the planet just as i fully believe that all these color differentiations of skin that have come as a as a, a function of climate and various other genetic aspects of our being. I think all the colors are going to disappear as well through intermarriage. We're all going to be one color. And then at a certain point, there's going to be a recognition that we are one world. Of course, you know, the, the thing that could speed that up the most 
is if we got attacked by another world, because then they they wouldn't <laughs> exactly. be attacking China or the United States. You know, they'd be attacked. You know, so the uh, adversity often brings people together as well. So the, these profound uh, transporting experiences, whether they're spiritual or sexual or love experiences or aesthetic, or incredible artistic experiences or experiences in nature or psychedelic awakenings, in all of those circumstances and all that literature, the first most report is the one that you just shared, which is, oh my gosh, we're all connected. This one giant creature, it's it's alive and we're inside the whole thing. Yes. Interesting that that, uh, that seems to be a truth that reveals itself, uh, and it reveals itself as true immediately, not as something you have to think about or muse about or figure out. Yes, that's right. That that this sense of, of and not only connection with each other, Charles, but connection with the mass that we call the planet. Right. I don't believe, and I, as a result of my psychedelic experiences, I don't really believe that we people humans are separate from the planet. I believe we're part of it. That we are part of one large, living, breathing organism. And, and, and it's, we are not a separate humanity. This is, this is all part of, of, of what is sometimes referred to as Gaia, you know, the, 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 the earth with everything on it as one living, breathing organism. So in the face of such a transporting realization, did you... Um, did you teach about psychedelics? Did you take more psychedelics? Did you engage in a community of, of psychedelic users? What, what happened to your initial psychedelic consciousness? Well, how, how did that unfold? That's a great question. Well, after that experience at Esalen, um, I did go back to teaching at Michigan for another year uh, and had uh, one psychedelic experience during that year, and that was a uh, a student uh, spotted me. <laughs> Somehow he sniffed me out and invited me to his home and gave me a DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and uh, that was an interesting experience. In that uh, I took a puff of it, and I just went into the cosmos. <laughs> a quick trip <laughs> instantly, whereas LSD can take a half hour, sometimes or more. In order to, uh, to to really feel it, this case I didn't even get the cigarette back into the ashtray and I was gone, gone. way out into the cosmos. Came back maybe ten or fifteen minutes later, and I said to the student, "She, I'd like to try that again." And uh, he gave me another puff, and again I'm out into the cosmos. I come back after 10 or 15 minutes and I looked at him and I said you know I didn't think I was an addictive type but I think I'm addicted I, I want I want I want more of that immediately may I have another puff and he said sure and he hands me to me again and I take the third puff and I'm zooming out into the cosmos and all of a sudden <laughs> all of a sudden I literally see a big red sign and it says caution. Right in red letters, I see it out in the black sky. There's a black sky with red letters, caution. And then I hear a voice. And the voice says to me, Richard, 
anything that gets you so far, so quickly, is to be deeply respected. Yay. And I came back after the 10 or 15 minutes, and he said, would you like another puff? And I said, no, thanks. I think I've had enough of this. And I, I've never uh, smoked that DMT again. The, the voice, that was enough. I might try it again sometimes just for the fun of it, but uh, you know, see. But the other part of it, which I learned years later in my much deeper experimentation with psychedelics, is that what was missing for me in that DMT experience, although I didn't know it at the time, was that it happened so quickly that I was not able to bring anything back of right. use. Right. I couldn't integrate. It was so overwhelming. It was it, it wasn't overwhelming so that I felt, you know, overwhelming has an implication that you feel bad because you're right. overwhelmed. I wasn't overwhelmed, I was just whelmed. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I was whelmed. It was like, whoa. It wasn't too much, but it was and, too and much was, to report. Oh my gosh, it was a rocket ship into yeah. space and it was pretty, but it was more like uh, the way I feel about um, uh, ketamine in large doses, IM or particularly IV, namely, it's a great ride in Coney Island, but I don't get to bring anything back, so I don't know if I want to bother going there again. Exactly. Because, exactly. because my interest in, in, in these uh, substances is some combination of of healing myself, of learning about myself, introspection, of searching out fear, which is something I like to do because I think fear is debilitating to humans. Right. Right. So I like to go looking at the nooks and crannies of my consciousness for, for, for fear and what am I afraid of so that I can heal it. And then, of course, ultimately for creativity. Can I use these substances and apply them to some project or something I'm working on in order to enhance it? But I'm not particularly looking for a ride in Coney Island. If I want a ride in Coney Island, you know, not now anymore, but a ride in Coney Island, I go to Coney Island, right. take the roller coaster, right. or get on a motorcycle, as I did, you know, that kind of thing. So, so you're really already making a distinction here between the pleasure of the experience, the ecstasy of the experience in and of itself, which is, which is righteous and profound, but the potential is there for transformation. And um, ecstasy is nice, but ultimately boring without transformation if you go there a lot. Beautifully said. I, I, I can't add to that. Yeah, yeah. So transformation became very much uh, accessible and the point and the promise of psychedelics for you as you began to explore, and you did begin to explore them more, I'm assuming. Transformation was, was the goal, no question about that. And so uh, after that experience um, at Michigan, uh, I moved to California uh, in 1968, I guess it was, uh, and there psychedelics were readily available, uh, LSD particularly, but I experimented in those days uh, with LSD, with uh, mescaline, with psilocybin, uh, those three, I can't think of any others. It was years later, it was actually more recently that I experimented with, uh, with ayahuasca. But in those days, it was, uh, it was LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline. 
and um, I uh, I was never particularly interested. I, I tried peyote once. I've never been interested in the um, in the psychedelics that cause uh, regurgitation. The concept of purging is yeah. not necessary to transformation from I, your perspective. I, I didn't buy into, and I still don't buy into, right. this um, theory, if you will, or explanation, if you will, that the purging is uh, psychological and you're getting right. rid of bad psychological stuff. Right. Right. I don't think so. I think as... as uh, as 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 uh, as Byers, who wrote uh, speaking to the plants, the ethnobotanist uh, Stephen Byers told me, ayahuasca is an emetic; it makes you puke, to put it in blunt terms, and and uh, and peyote makes you puke, and they make you puke because of there's a certain toxicity in them to the human system. That doesn't uh, that doesn't turn me on; doesn't do much right. for me, <laughs> right. and, and it's not getting rid of old psychological stuff that the that some of these people claim it is. So I, I prefer the ones without side effects. Uh, side effects, that's a fun... I, I, side effects do not happen on the side. Side effects happen to the whole system. So side effects to me uh, is a way that the pharmaceutical companies have sanitized what I call unwanted complications of medicine, OCM, they're not side effects, <laughs> they're full effects, and they're unwanted, OCM, unwanted complications of medicine. I don't want those unwanted complications you know, in my life, uh, you know, as little as possible. So, uh, so my uh, psychedelics that I learned over the years of choice are, uh, are LSD and, uh, and, and psilocybin. LSD is definitely my favorite. But then years later, um, well, just let me back up a bit. So I started that experimentation in the late 60s and continued that experimentation um, throughout the 70s. And then in the 80s, the 1980s, um, I uh, started this uh, chemical dependence program called Coke-Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. And I thought it was important that I not take anything while I was leading that program. Because I, I was that. working with people who were taking things that were hurting them, right. such as alcohol and cocaine and heroin, uh, and I and um, so I, I went uh, au naturel without taking anything, mm-hmm. including alcohol uh, of any kind, during that ten-year period. I was asked at one point. In fact, uh, when I first met Rick Doblin. Uh, um, in 1985, at a conference at Esalen, he asked about the use of psychedelics with uh, chemically dependent people. Uh-huh. And at the time, I was opposed, if not opposed to it, I was not in favor of it because I was concerned that taking a drug in order to stop taking other drugs was a slippery slope because it would lead them back into taking their drugs of choice eventually. Right. I'm not sure I still believe that. I think we need more research on that at the present time. But I certainly, I went uh, completely, uh, you know, n- non-anything for that 10-year period. Then, after I completed that program uh, in the 90s, uh, with one exception, uh, oh, there was one exception, to my uh, staying completely uh, without any substances, and that's MDMA. 
In the early 80s, I was in therapy with Dr. Robert Cantor uh, down in, uh, in Atherton, and uh, he administered MDMA to me uh, during uh, some of my sessions. And that was a ver another very large experience. Very different than a psychedelic experience, but of equal impact and, and um, substantiality. Yes, yes. Equal impact and, and substantiality in a different way. Um, whereas the LSD is a more cerebral, uh, the, uh, the MDMA is definitely more, what you might say, emotional. Right. It's, you know, related to as the empathy drug, as an entheogen. Uh, they're very interesting in combination. The MDMA and LSD, I found out years later. Uh, but he did administer it to me, and it was very effective in my own personal uh, therapy at the time. But then very soon thereafter, I think it was 1985, that MDMA got scheduled. LSD right. had been scheduled in 1967. And... Um, so it got scheduled and it became illegal and then I couldn't use it with patients or any, anything right. or anybody. And um, it was sometime later, uh, after I completed the Cokenders Alcohol and Drug Program, it was a 10-year uh, program, that I started experimenting again. But it was only uh, in the last maybe... 15 years that I really resumed uh, the experimentation that I'd begun in the late 60s. And this time I did it with, uh, with, with very, um, very pointedly. You know, I decided what kind of things I was going to take, what circumstances, uh, the, the circumstances for me have always been pretty much the same, namely that the set and the setting that we hear about you don't just hear about them. They're essential. Set and setting Absolutely. are essential. You, you really need to uh, have your mind set on, on what you're about, where your head is emotionally, and what your cognitive, you know, what you're thinking about, and, and set that before you go in. And, and it's imperative that you have a clean setting. When I say a clean setting, I mean a place where you're not going to be interrupted in any way. This has to be a sacramental experience. Uh, if you're doing it for, for the purposes that we're talking about here, for introspection, for transformation, for creativity. Uh, this is not going to a rock show the way uh, I use these. Right. these, these uh, and I'm not knocking those people. You wanna, That's a whole other genre of use of psychedelics, which is for recreational purposes. But that isn't my trip. It's that distinction, again, between the, the, the ecstasy and euphoria on the one hand and the potential transformative power on the other hand. Um, you like them both. And, mm. and one without the other is not ultimately interesting to you in the long term. Transformation That's right. is where it's at. Yeah, the transformation is where it's at. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember uh, young students often coming to me and asking me uh, if they should take LSD. And I always replied the same way. I said, LSD is only going to have a certain number of potential tr big transformation power moments for you. If you take it a whole bunch when you're younger, you take it a whole bunch recreationally, you may wear out its capacity to be a transformation catalyst. And so 
you want to space it out or be a little cautious, it's it's to honor its transformation capacity, mm-hmm. not because euphoria and ecstasy is bad in any way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not, we're not taking a moralistic position. Um, speaking of a moralistic position, I want to go over to a little area, and then I want to come back to really what are the big learnings? What you know? What what wisdom are you bringing back to us all? But I want to ask you another question because, of course, it's true that during the whole latter portion of your experimentation and continuing, it's illegal. It's against the law. We're criminals. All of us who are participating in this show are coming here in a certain sense to go, Hi, I'm a criminal. I, I broke the law, but the potential... And the learning and the depth was important enough that I had the courage to take that kind of risk. How? Why did you take that risk? How did that happen? Why did you go ahead anyway after the government said, no, 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 you can't do that anymore? And how did you manage that? That's really a great question, uh, Charles. And, and it's a question that has plagued me for my entire adult life. Yeah. It really has plagued me. Because, as I said in my introduction about the other people that I've interviewed. We are good citizens. I I abide by the laws of the land. I pay my taxes. I help my neighbors. I've I've spent my whole life helping people, treating people, uh, taking extraordinarily difficult cases on purpose. No, I've I've been a decent father. And, and and I try to be a decent husband, and um, and I and I want to think of myself, and I do think of myself as being a, a contributory member of our society. Your track is so positive over a whole lifetime, and that's I, true of you. I, I know that to be true of you. And, and and so you know, I I want to believe that of myself, and yet I've been plagued for now over fifty years knowing that, as you pointed out, I'm a criminal. Right. And I don't want to think of myself as a criminal. I, you know, I don't steal things. I don't rob things. Right. I, don't I, don't, I don't hurt people. Um, and, um, and, and yet there is this sort of Damocles, you know, always hanging over. And it's put me at odds with my government in, in a certain way. Uh, it's it's um, which is a place none of us ever wanted to be ever wanted to be those ne- of us who are participating in this exploration that you've initiated in these uh, interviews definitely never wanted to be I mean I'm proud of the fact that I've made testimony to the, a presidential commission that I've talked before the California Assembly right. that I've worked for the Department of Justice as a as a consultant I'm very proud of that. But I'm also always knowing that if they knew right. about this, they not only wouldn't have hired me, they might have prosecuted me. That is not a good place to be. And that's not a good place for thousands, if not tens of thousands, of me's around the country. Because uh, as we're learning you know, from the psychedelic elders, and that's one of the reasons, the main reason that I'm doing these interviews and will publish a book about it, is for the country to know that there are these tens exactly. of thousands 
of good people, good citizens, honest people who have been doing this exploration. And why is it, you ask, that I've been willing to risk so much? Because from the first time I tried uh, this, this, uh, the, these materials, from that very first experience, innocent experience, when it was legal, remember when it was legal, before 1967, exactly. from that very first experience with the morning glory seeds, I became aware that this is important, that this is a, a, an avenue uh, to new dimensions. I learned what Huxley had already learned, exactly. that exactly. there really are doors of perception through which we can walk and see alternate realities and alternate ways of looking at reality and alternate ways of seeing how people can relate and to understand that we don't need to be divisive, that we really can unite, that it's possible, even though it doesn't look like that's what's going on uh, on the planet, even right. at this very moment. Turn on the news this morning and there are uprisings in South Africa, uprisings in Cuba. The president of Haiti just got killed. Uh, you know, it's constant, this constant uh, killing each other. And yet there's this undeniable experience when taking these substances that we can't collaborate. It's sort of like um, I hear you saying, if you just knew what I've experienced, you'd be a lot nicer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> at a deep, deep level. At yes. a deep level. Um, Richard, is there anything about, about uh, I want to get more into what the meaning of these experiences is and so on. Is there anything that, that, uh, was really unique or really surprising or that, that uh, those of us who are, have been your colleagues in this, in this exploration, whether we were doing it together or not, we were definitely doing it together. Um, any data you want to bring back to the pool that might be really surprising or astonishing or intriguing to all of us explorers? Any radically unusual experiences or absolutely unique experiences? I've come to believe that it's within our power to take volitional control of involutional qualities of life, involutional processes. And so the example I like to use is when we cut ourselves on our skin like on the back of our hand and you know maybe a knife that we're working with and, and we cut open the skin we don't freak out over a, a cut in the skin even a deep one because if it's very very deep we might go and have it stitched up mm -hmm. otherwise we just either put a band-aid on it and we believe every one of us believes that over the course of days it's going to pull together. It's going to do something we call scabbing over the top. The scab is then going to fall off. We're going to be left with tight skin 
once again, New skin. <laughs> and it may have a little mark on it that we call a scar. And we all believe that, and we're correct, because it almost always happens. But we don't know how we did it. But yet we did it. If I do, if that happens on my skin, I can't point to you, Charles, and say you did that. Right. I can't point to a doctor and say he or she did that. I'm the. I have to have done that because it's on me. So here I have something, almost re- miraculous, if you will, happening, and I don't know how I did it. I've come to believe through the use of psychedelic substances that we can learn how we did that. And when we learn how we did that on that cut, we will then begin to apply that how to other areas of our body. We will be able to apply that how we did that to a kidney or a pancreas or a liver or even a heart. We will learn how to take volitional control of involutional processes. And to me, that is one of the biggest things that I have learned from my psychedelic experiences, and I believe it fully. So a psychedelically nourished state of mind gives you the time to explore directly, experientially, the connection between the mind and the body in a way that we don't in normal consciousness. And that somewhere in there, there are mysteries that we can learn from. That's a, that's a kind of transformation that not very many psychedelic trippers talk very much about. That's very special. That's a very unique one. I agree with that, by the way. I, that's also my experience. The way the mind connects with the body is accessible and psychedelics seem to be one of the tools in getting at that connection. Yes, the the only other person that I'm familiar with, and I interviewed him on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, uh, that talks about this is Bruce Lipton, uh, and he talks about it in terms of uh, epigenetics, of being able to use the mind to go inside and make uh, structural changes. Right. And there are certain scientists who are talking about this, but it's it's relatively rare. It is. But it's a game changer, isn't it? Absolutely a game changer and and I I I'm sure as you're collecting uh, our collective stories, uh, from time to time, one of those amazing stories surfaces about a period of time under the influence of psychedelics uh, doing physical activities that would have otherwise been impossible, too challenging, or damaging in some way, and having them not be any of those things mm-hmm. under the influence of a psychedelic. And I've literally heard and experienced hundreds of those kinds of stories from psychedelic journeys. So I, th- I think you're really onto something there. I think, mm-hmm. I think uh, it, psychedelics provide a school to learn how intention and bodily action connect at the deepest possible levels. Yes. Great yes. insight. That's, a, that's an incredible insight. One of the many reasons why we, as you've said to me so many times, why we need to um, have access to these medicines in a research and exploratory and transformative setting. There's so much to be done and so much to be learned, and uh, the need for it is vital right now. It, it is, yes. What, so, so what's going to happen now? 
It's changing. I mean, it, it is changing. Uh, those of us who have been doing it forever are beginning to come out from under the log and behind the doors. And the world is beginning to recognize that there's something of immense importance about these medicines, these foods. Um, what are we going to do now? What's going to happen, do you think? Well, what it looks like at the present time is people who are motivated by making large amounts of money are realizing that there are large amounts of money to be made from psychedelic substances. And by, <laughs> by pouring large amounts of money into psychedelic science, um, it will enable companies to be formed which will have enough money uh, associated with them to be able to hire lobbyists. And because of the, uh, the uh, very misguided way our government is structured, lobbyists have a lot of influence. Right. And these lobbyists will lobby the government to legalize these substances, not for the right reasons, but the end result will be the same, which is they will become legal uh, and science will be allowed to move forward, which it hasn't been for the last 50 or 60 years because of the suppression of research by a misguided government. And money will, will force a change and the change will come and then we will start to see some real double-blind research, some serious research, and we will learn a lot more. And then more and more uh, people will, ex will be experimenting and we'll see you know, just how much we can learn, not just about healing, as I just described in terms of taking control of, of evolutional processes, but in terms of also creativity. You know, what does it mean? And what can we learn from a Steve Jobs or Watson and Crick and, and, uh, and Carl Sagan, all of whom made huge breakthroughs in science by using psychedelics while they were doing their, their creative work. They were focusing their mind. We, we have just hardly scratched the surface on the use of these substances for creativity. So we've got so much ahead of us using it for health, using it for creativity, using it for emotional expansion, and, and possibly, you know, hopefully, using it for more and more of us to realize that we are all connected, that we're all citizens <laughs> of the same ball of dirt, an earth that's flying through the universe. So that's what I'm, I'm looking to the, to the future. So let me, give you a, let me give you a hypothetical invitation. Yes. Uh, let's suppose that uh, some uh, psychedelically uh, nourished philanthropist with considerable resources uh, comes along and says, we're going to open a psychedelic university, the first, the first university focused primarily on the exploration of psychedelics' impact on culture, knowledge, learning, art, athletics, the whole works. And uh, they said, first of all, will you, uh, will you sit on the governing board and um, how do we get started with this? What, what, what sorts of things shall our psychedelic university 
um, research and how shall we structure it and who shall we invite? What would you do, Richard? Somebody comes along and says, okay, your life's work, your great discovery, all of this stuff has happened. Um, let's build an institution to explore it. What would you do? How would Gosh, you do it? Charles, you're reading my mind. I've actually suggested to some financial people that uh, that we buy an island <laughs> and 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 form a sovereign country, so that we could make our own laws, and then be able to start exactly what you said, right. a psychedelic university, psychedelic science, the University of Psychedelic Science right. is actually what I called it, right. and then we want to bring in people from the widest variety of the sciences be they the soft sciences, such as psychology is considered soft somewhat, and sociology and anthropology, but the hard sciences, right, of, 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 of biochemistry, right. uh, nuclear medicine, and start administering to volunteers who will come from all around the world to this island uh, to volunteer to be subjects in this experiment, and we start collecting data, and we, and we aim the data you know, at the various components, be it health, creativity, and so on. Because the chemists are capable, chemists such as my friends uh, Nick Cozy, uh, Dr. Nick Cozy and, and Dr. Paul Daly uh, of the Shulgren Research Institute, you know, they're capable if they're given the laboratory, you know, <laughs> and, and the backing of creating compounds that are aimed specifically at different illnesses, that are aimed specifically at different parts of the body. And they could do that, but they've got to be given the wherewithal to right. do it. And so the answer to your question of, you know, it would be a huge organizational job, but starting any university is a huge organizational job because you want to bring in as many uh, areas as possible and you want to coordinate them all. You don't want them working independently as happens too, too often so that they're working as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, right, and integrating their information. And that would be tremendously exciting. This is one of the things that, that I mean, you, you've alluded to something that, that, except for the relatively small number of people who are familiar with Shulgin's work and his two publications about uh, multiple molecular modifications that uh, he did um, while working for the government or while uh, under, under uh, a legal license from the government, uh, and administered those substances to a variety of, of very learned and um, uh, respectable and, and uh, exploratory folks. We know that, that twists on molecules uh, open different regions, of entirely different regions of consciousness whose content is not the same as other regions of consciousness. And he catalogs some 20 or 30 of those substances that he explored and that he collected data on. Most people are not aware that, that we talk about LSD or mescaline, uh, which are, are two families, two, the two primary psychedelic families. Um, most people are aware that there's, there's, that it's a big sprawly family that we know almost nothing about and that 
each member of the family opens up a particular region of the mind. Is that the kind of thing the university would be exploring? Oh, exactly what it would yeah. be exploring. And I'm so glad you mentioned Alexander Shulman because yeah. he's a seminal figure uh, in this entire uh, uh, process of learning about psychedelics. You know, he and Albert Hoffman... Uh, Unquestionably, as you know, seminal figures of this. I, I think of Chauvin as the Isaac Newton of the psychedelic movement. I mean, uh -huh. he, he did the first really systematic exploration, and and we're still uh, we're still waiting for the news to get out. Right. I mean, he's actually beyond Newton because uh, Newton didn't jump off a building; exactly. he dropped things. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Sasha took all these different things. As he was the first subject in all his experiments, which is you know incredibly courageous. He's on a level with. With uh, with the fellow that uh, that uh, ingested uh, a bacteria to to show that uh, that uh, ulcers were created by what he identified as right. Heliobacter pylori, but he gave it to himself, and that's what Sasha did. Really, you know, he he took everything himself, yep. put himself at huge risk every time. Uh, gosh, I, I just jump right in. What's the meaning of life, and how has your answer to that question changed from taking psychedelics? <laughs> There's a big one for you. But we got to go there. Who are you now? When I was uh, in my teens, in my late teens in college, I was introduced. Remember, earlier in this interview, I told you about this friend of mine, Lionel Bloom who came over from Paris and brought LSD to me in the summer of 67 when I was uh, at the Esalen Institute. Well, uh, prior to that, back at the University of Illinois uh, in my teens, Lionel introduced me to the existential philosophers. So he introduced me to Sartre and, uh, and Camus, for sure, and... Um, They resonated. There was a tremendous resonance inside of me to reading uh, this philosophy in the same way that years later I resonated to the work of Carl Rogers in clinical psychology mm -hmm. and, some, uh, and some of the others, Walkington and Carl, and Carl Whitaker. But I particularly uh, resonated to the existential philosophers and I, I um, sometimes I kid around and I say that that I'm a card carrying existentialist. <laughs> that I that I yeah. you know I read that, and parts of it that I read are the answer to your question, because now some sixty years later, I still believe what I took on at that at time. That time. Yeah. yeah, and the essential parts that I took on at that time are that. The meaning of life is that which we imbue with meaning for life. Period, end of sentence. To elaborate, if I want to make my life meaning building rock walls, then the meaning of life for me is building rock walls. And if I want to make the meaning of life going up into space in a rocket the way Sir Richard Branson did recently, 
then that's the meaning of life for Richard Branson. That each of us makes our own meaning. So the meaning emerges out of, out of us. There is in the context. So, there is no grand plan. There is no grand meaning. There isn't meaning that's more important than other meaning. It's that we get existence. We get to be here because of all the trillions upon trillions of combinations of eggs and sperm. We made it. The ones of us who are here yeah. made it. Yeah. The ones who didn't make it will never even know that they didn't make it. Right. They just died in a womb or somewhere else. But we made it. So we get the existence. And then each of us makes meaning. And that's it. So self is in world, that's given, but what emerges out of our intention and actions is meaningfulness, and that's unique. The meaningfulness of it. Now, the connection to each other supersedes that, because that's a given. That's part of being here. It's just like all elephants are elephants, right? All people are people. And so we are all connected and all the same in that regard. But as much as we are the same and as much as we share our DNA, every person on the planet, as much as we share, we do have this individual aspect, which is what's going to be meaningful, you know, what can we make of meaning given the cards that we got dealt? That's important, given the cards given that we cards. got dealt. In the context. Yes, of course. Comes because back to set and setting again, doesn't it? <laughs> it's ob obviously you get dealt a very different set of cards if you're born a third generation living on a garbage heap in India, which we have evidence that there are third generations of people right. born and living and dying their whole life on a garbage heap. And there are people in the, in the prisons of three generations in North Korea who will be born and die in the prison, and then their children will be born and die in those prisons. And then there are people who are born, and they will be the king and queen of England. So those are cards, you know, certain aspects that get dealt. But within that, of what you got dealt, how you make meaning or non-meaning out of your everyday existence is a personal decision, and, and I continue to believe that. And so right now, I am making the meaning of my entire existence sitting here with you for this interview. I don't exist with my wife in the other house. I don't exist with my children. I don't exist with my patients, with my clients. I don't exist anywhere else. Uh, this is it. And if the world comes to an end right now, my life ended sitting with Charles Bush in a library being interviewed. There ain't no more. I believed that back when I was in my teens. I believe that right now. And I believe that we are making the meaning of our lives this interview at this moment. And it's certainly psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Richard, one, I've, I've got one more, uh, uh, one more avenue that I want to explore a little bit with you. And, um, so you've been a therapist and a teacher, a writer, 
an educator in the large sense in terms of, of your, uh, your radio and television um, uh, interview and performances and lectures. Um, and so things have evolved and uh, psychedelic substances of a wide variety of sorts are available under certain circumstances to be licensed for use by individuals who are teachers or healers or therapists or whatever the right word or name is. Guys. If you could, would you use psychedelics as a teacher today and if it was up to you to define the how and the circumstances and for whom, what would you do? Would you, would you be a teacher who uses psychedelics as a tool in your healing and transformational work? Assuming well, actually, yeah, okay. the, there's, yeah, there's two parts of the actually, the way I hear the question. And one answer is, that I believe that these tools are so valuable and so important that they ought to be part of education mm -hmm. to the public. And I think that a certain regimen and protocol of taking psychedelics should be part of a high school education. I think most likely the senior year of high school. Uh, people should be uh, go through a protocol of taking psychedelic a certain number of psychedelics for their personal development and expansion, for their expansion of their empathy, for expansion of their creativity, and as we learn more about healing, for their use at, at, in healing. So that's part of my answer to your question. In terms of my own, uh, would I use them in my work? Uh, I would use them in a very limited way, and I'll tell you why. The best thing that a guide can do when guiding someone in a LSD or psilocybin, a lengthy psychedelic experience, the best thing, the best work, is you do very little. You keep your mouth shut, and you're there in case, or you're there if there's some difficulty. And people talk about such things as a bad trip. A bad trip is the best kind of trip, in my opinion. <laughs> that is the best kind of trip. Because, as I told you, when in my first psychedelic experience, when I thought people were going to smash down the walls and take me away, and then I realized it was guys hammering, what a great illumination to find out that my mind was capable of making such negativity because I was afraid, getting back to your question, about being plagued by doing something illegal. Right. Why was I afraid they'd take me away? Because I was doing something illegal that was already bothering me, even during taking those seeds. You know, why it, while it was legal, I thought I was doing something bad or right. wrong, right? So, very important to, to learn this to learn how to navigate, but with these lengthy ones, and I, I just digress for a second about a bad trip. So as a guide, you know, you help a person because a bad trip means they're getting into negative material about themselves. You help them get into the negative experience rather than away from it, and then they learn how to master it, and then they come out more confident. So that's a great thing. However, for the most part, a guide on an eight-hour or 10-hour trip is, is 
bringing some water, maybe a few pieces of sliced oranges. And it's boring. It's very, very boring. You know, you sit there or read a book the whole time. That's not my, that's not for me. MDMA, on the other hand, with couples, it opens them up and there's action and there's activity and there's some work for me to do. I like to work. So I, if, I, <laughs> right. if I'm sitting with somebody, I want to go to work. I don't want to sit there just, you know. So the guiding is another whole thing, and that gotcha. isn't for me. Educational, again, if you're going to do it with the, with the kids in high school, has to be very special set and setting and a protocol. And I think people can be trained to be guides. They don't need to be doctors necessarily. Uh, we can train people, and, and, uh, and they can do that. So that's my answer in terms of my own my own personal involvement. Do you, uh, just very frankly, do you anticipate that that um, psychedelic substances will now, for the second time in at least our modern Western industrialized era, for a second time, will really uh, uh, experience a resurgence and, um, gosh, crystal ball how do you think that might happen what what texture you and and directions do you would you hope and perhaps even anticipate might happen here well you know the old saying you can't stop a river yeah the words out the word got out in the 60s okay it took 50 years or 60 years for it to come back they may knock it back again when i say they those forces of repression suppression and who are they Religion and politics, those are the two groups that are going to come against, if they're going to come against, because they're afraid, they're deeply afraid, the religious groups and the politicians are deeply afraid that if too many people think for themselves, they're liable to start voting their thoughts, and they're going to change the very structure of government, which needs to be changed, and the very structure of religion, which needs to be changed, because both of those extremely powerful forces on our planet are by their very nature divisive. Politics brings parties and then it's we against them and religion brings our religion is better than your religion and this fight for territory or crusades, if you will, of people against people. And, and that way of thinking is old and tired and eventually, hopefully, will dry up. I say hopefully because one can't be certain. You know, I think ultimately, on this planet, there's going to be a major battle for the philosophy of planetary control. And it's, it's going to come right down to... I'm going to back up a bit on my answer to that. One of the things I saw in my psychedelic experience was how we came out of the caves and then little caves started to associate with other little caves. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, the biggest and strongest cave person was the boss, based on physical brute strength. And those little bands got together and formed what we call then villages. And remember, Rome was originally just a little village, but it became an empire. And I think that's the paradigm for us to look at, how a little village 
became the Roman Empire over time because smaller and smaller gain more smalls and they get bigger and bigger as like you have 10 smalls, then you have 20 smalls, then, then you know you have a region and then after your region you have something larger and then you have something you call the country. So then you have these countries that are formed, like all the countries in Europe. But then over time, they pull together as the European Union, the United States, 13 colonies. They pull together, form a United States, and then it becomes a continent. And then little grocery stores get pulled together and they form, and then there's a bigger store, and then you end up with a box store, and all the little stores are out of existence, and little farms, either they become bigger farms and bigger farms, and they get bought out until they're gigantic farms. So there's this assembling that goes on, whether it's people from the caves to the countries to the continents, or from the stores to the box stores to the Amazon, they're all assembling, assembling, together and just like I mentioned earlier the colors of the skin will come together and the languages will come together and at a certain point it will be one world and then there's going to be this dramatic dramatic fight for the nature of the of the structure of the organizing and running of that world and it's either it is there's going to be two Two opposing forces that, that I see on this. There's going to be the, the force of what I call the human, humanitarian or humanistic. We're going, to, we're going to organize this planet on the basis of the most good for the most people, how we can share everything. Or the opposing force is going to be dictatorial. And that's going to be from the top down the people at the top get the most, and we will go back to a form of what we had in ancient Egypt, where there was one little tiny percent at the top, the pharaohs, and everybody else who weren't military or religious were slaves. And do you think that do you think that uh, the next wave of expansion uh, of investigation and research and use of psychedelic nourishment? Um, has the potential to move us in that direction uh, of a network rather than a top to bottom kind of arrangement? Do you think that, that the energy of psychedelics in the human psyche uh, potentially inclines us to um, hold hands and walk together rather than me being the boss and telling you where to go? Do you think it I believe the potential way? of the, the, the intrinsic nature of the psychedelic themselves is towards us holding hands and walking together. But that does not mean that the forces who would prefer <laughs> that I tell you whose hand to hold, you know, will not be very powerful. And also, we don't know to what extent there will be resistance, even if these psychedelics are proven to be the fountain of all things great. We have 25 or 30% of the population now who are vaccination decliners, which include resistors, anti, I don't know, conspiratorial, I'm afraid of, 
you know, it's multimodal, but when you add them all up, you have at least 25% of the population who are not taking something that potentially could save their lives. So what percent of the population will not take something that potentially could change the course of history on the planet for the better? I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good place to leave it off. Uh, it's kind of like saying um, we know there's a good medicine and uh, there's uh, tens of thousands of us who took it and uh, found that it made us more effective, nicer, and more likely to have good things happen around us than if we hadn't. And um, so thanks for telling us your story, Richard, and thanks for facilitating all of this storytelling. And uh, to all of you who are our dear listeners and who are interested, um, I'm now going to turn this show back over uh, to its wonderful and much-loved host. I hope you've enjoyed spending time with my guest. And now back to our host, Dr. Richard Miller. Oh, thank you, Charles. Thank you so much for your for your warm and uh, and and uh, a very helpful uh, interview. It was great fun, and and thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. With special thanks uh, to our producer Charlie Dice and our sound engineer David Springer, who working together as a team, a collaborative team, make this broadcast possible. Uh, By the way, this program and our other programs can all be found archived on our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Uh, Please join me again next Tuesday at uh, 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, David will be with us in a second here, I think, to uh, tell us what to do next. And there's David. <laughs>